So welcome all. Man, our Mother's Day messages around here are always epic in some way, but last week, guys, anybody, anybody resonate with me? I think it may be a game changer for us. Some, some sermons stand as pillars that guide us, and I can think of a half dozen over the last 10 years that I've been here. None of them have been sermons I preached, That you, if you, because I know you were wondering, well, of the half dozen, how many do you take credit for? It's exactly zero, uh, but what a great... What a great thing it was to have Sam and Nancy here. And it opened for us a very interesting conversation, an important conversation around the permission to see the sacred feminine in God. Now, that doesn't even feel controversial to me, but there's parts of the internet that I guess that still is. So anyway, essentially, the invitation is for us to consider, along with God who we understand to be father, also God who we understand to be mother. You do the work and you pick up the metaphors in Hebrew and you will find these are not gender binaries, these are not gender specific, and so we've not done anything crazy. We've just named some stuff, and so that's just what we're, that's what we're gonna be good at. Recovering our understanding of the divine from these linguistic binaries, you guys, all binaries have fallen. There's a few left that Christians are super attached to, and if you touch them, they'll tell you God hates you. We know better than that. Moving linguistic binary, removing them from our, the ways we describe God and refer to God, I think is essential. And I just think it's the work that we have to do now. It'll have everything to do with how we parent, if we do this. It'll have everything to do with how we couple, friends. It'll have everything to do with how we discover, explore, maintain intimacy. It'll have everything to do with how we raise our young. It's time we do this work. I think it's the work in front of us now. Y'all, of course the ancients referred to God as male. Of course they did. They couldn't have done anything but that. Remember where they were in time and history. Remember the tree rings that would have been fresh at the time. Look at their context. And so Sam and Nancy rooted their conversation in Psalm 23rd, the 23rd Psalm. But we could apply that same gender expansive lens to every chapter of our sacred text, for every chapter and season of our faith and church history. We could apply it to all of the things, and I'm suggesting that we must. That will be our work to do now. And turning back to a text uh, about which we thought we knew everything, right? Looking back to texts in our, in our scriptures that we thought we fully understood and having another look based on new evidence is the good work of being a disciple, y'all. We say it all the time. It's not certainty, it's curiosity that drives discipleship. So if you feel afraid because you're asking questions, it might mean you're doing something right. Yeah, the nine o'clock thought that was no more entertaining than y'all did, so... <laughs> They were just like, mm, yeah, okay, anyway. As you know, as I'm, I'm hoping you're picking up as we move through this little series, this is exactly what the book of Acts is about. Looking at old things that were, were airtight assumptions with new evidence in mind, now what do we need to say about our history and our trajectory and what we used to know and what we thought we knew and how do we look at it now given this new thing? Right? This is the work of the friends of Jesus. I wonder if it's ever occurred to you, why did they wait 40 years to write any of this down? You know 40 years transpire from when this whole thing wraps up and someone finally sat down, Mark was the one who did it and said, we gotta put this on paper. Why did they wait 40 years? Well, guys, it takes a minute to figure out everything you thought you knew about the world. Uh-oh, there's this new evidence because we've just traveled around with this guy who just casts a whole new light on all those things. It takes a minute. That is the work. That's the story of the book of Acts. But of course, I'm getting ahead of myself. And when you hear me say that, that's a, in, in, in the middle of an intro, then just know that I'm a tortured literature professor's kid. Listen, that's a literary foreshadow of where we might be going. So you can put your hooks on there. We'll get back to that in a minute. So I don't know about you. But I've been a little bit surprised by these little stories in the book of Acts. I guess I thought they were random, and they turned out to have a lot of coherence in them, as I'm finding. 
I say this often, we do our theology on the fly, meaning we do our theology from below, as my seminary professors would have said. We begin with a point here, and we begin to extrapolate meaning that takes us to the transcendent. We don't begin with the transcendent and try to figure out how to think about what's immediate, but we start from below. That's just kind of how we do it. It begins for us with this question, how, what kind of human do I want to be in the world? How do I want to live in my neighborhood? And then we work our way forward. And why is that important? Well, because we're talking about what are the principles of community? We're asking ourselves, what should we be building community on now that we're emerging from basically two years of not being able to participate in this way? Well, we're thinkers around here. We just are. We put a lot of thinking into how we do faith. And it's a disorienting work to constantly consider our theological construction. And I see you doing the work. Sometimes I watch you in conversations choking on the, the, you know, the pieces of this as we go. And I commend you for keeping up because we don't move at a very slow clip. I recognize that what was said here last week, and I want to commend you for this too, was something that you probably couldn't have said not that many years ago. Mother God, that would have been impossible for your, for your lips to say for some of you 12 months ago, 18 months ago. And I just want to say, I see you being courageous. Let's continue to put the pedal down as we follow the Spirit of God. So today's story in my opinion, could be one of the very most significant of all of the stories of the early church. Simply put, the crisis that faced the apostles that we're going to read about in Acts 11 was either going to destroy this little work that they called, you know, the, the friends of Jesus, or it was going to explode it once and for all until it included the entire world. I wonder if you recall, what was the impulse that moved the apostles out of Jerusalem into the greater world? Do you remember? It wasn't a sense of calling or mission. It was because the city was on fire. Most of the, when the city was burned to the ground, they thought, okay, I guess we got to go now. So there was, there's a lag here, right? So we're, we're looking at this now. This is the moment that they began to expand and include all people. And we, Gentiles, and I say that somewhat inclusively thinking, maybe you're Jewish, but I don't know very many Jewish people in our congregation. But we, Gentiles, should be super grateful that things went the way they did because this was the moment that we were included in the scope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. No, wait, let me, let, me, let me be more clear about that. We were always included in the heart of God and the plan of God, but in terms of a budding community that would later call itself Christian, this was the moment that we were included. So I don't know if you grew up daydreaming about time travel, but I'm hoping at the very mention of that sentence, you can guess whether I did or not. <laughs> you see, we didn't have smartphones or emails. We had Michael J. Fox and lightning bolts and DeLoreans. Anybody? And I'm telling you, if you're going to go back and watch that flick with your kids, go into the flick a couple of drinks in because it's horrible stuff. <laughs> but we had Michael J. Fox. If I could teleport myself back to any moment in the ancient world, this is the moment in Acts 11. This confrontation between Peter and the conservatives of his day, a philosophical argument that would eventually result in a full-scale church council by Acts 15, this is the moment that I would pick. And I know that makes me a super weird church nerd. What can I tell you? I will never pretend to be other than I am. As best I can recall, what the church does and who the church includes has been almost the singular focus of my life from about age 14 on. Sorry, that's what you got. Inclusion is everything to me. It always has been. And maybe it's because I grew up a white kid in Latin America where exclusionary theology was just part of the wallpaper of my youth. No one even asked questions about it. It was just always there, never really, never really interrogated. But as I mentioned a few weeks ago, the who of the gospel always mattered more to me than the what or the how. Meaning, and I mean this, 
inclusion isn't an important or essential part of the gospel, friends. It is the gospel. And that is the story of the book of Acts. So enough teasing the text. Let's jump in together now. Acts chapter 11, and this comes to us from the lectionary for today. I'm going to read the first 10 verses, and we'll, get, we'll finish it out a little bit later. And it reads this way. Now the apostles and the believers who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also accepted the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him. I guess circumcision and criticism go together. I don't know. It seems, seems to be. That's a weird point. It's also not in my notes, Will, in case you needed to know. I would never leave that in my notes. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him, saying, Where did you, why did you go to the uncircumcised men and eat with them? Then Peter began to explain to them, step by step, saying, I was in the city of Joppa, praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. There was something like a large sheet coming down from heaven, being lowered by its four corners, and it came close to me. And as I looked at it closely, I saw four-footed animals, beasts of prey, reptiles, and birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I replied, by no means, Lord, for nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. Just don't say that sentence ever. In the history of, in the history, of history, don't let that sentence come out of your mouth. <laughs> Verse 9. But a second time the voice answered from heaven, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times, and then everything was pulled up again to heaven. We'll pause there. Now, just to be sure we don't overlook the importance of this exchange, Luke describes it three total times in the text, each time adding new depth and detail. And for Luke, this was something of a literary device. He did this all the time. I wonder if you can recall how many times in the book of Acts do we have the telling of the conversion of Saul? You got it. Three different times. That's, what, that's how he stacks meaning as he moves his way forward. Now, friends, Jews didn't just dislike Gentiles, right? This isn't just Chelsea and Liverpool in an FA Cup match. They didn't just dislike, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. They didn't just dislike Gentiles. They were taught, and catch me here, they were taught from very young ages that God could not possibly be involved with those people. Period. You see, then as now, we who consider in and out, clean and unclean, we make these lists based on how we're trained, and it has everything to do with the kinds of communities that we build. And this is exactly the issue before the apostles at this point. And I'm arguing that this is really the sort of the, the larger picture, the story of the book of Acts. And a few things strike me about this story. There's something funny, something odd, something bold, something of a rebuke, another something funny, and finally something that I think really we need to get our hands on right now at this particular chapter in this particular church at this particular time. So it's funny to me how well conservatives kept track of the movements of Peter. Now hear me, I'm not saying conservatives as we think of political boundaries. I'm talking about the people who thought that it was their life goal to make sure that we stay in the past and conserve the ways things always were. Conservatives in, in, in sort of a philosophical space mean the people who were invested in maintaining purity rules. This is who's in and this is out. So I'm not talking about parties. I simply mean those who wanted to call Peter to account because he's now somehow doing something that doesn't fit within the picture. It's funny how they tracked his movements even in cities where they were not. You see, there will always be someone peering through closed curtains and locked doors when we least expect it. There will always be someone more than willing to call us to account publicly for the disappointing notion of social purity, somehow disappointing those mores. That's funny to me. But the sheet thing, this sheet thing is a little bit odd. Let's, let's be honest. It's a strange image and most likely a really bad translation. 
If you look at the Greek, which I don't recommend you do, just save yourself the hassle, it suggests that, that Peter had a vision of some kind of a large container, some sort of a vessel that was being lowered by some kind of a sheet or some sort of a veil or some sort of a sail. And so I don't know what that summons in your mind, but it, in my mind, it looks a little bit like a boat full of animals. I wonder if that brings up any flannel graph history in your mind. Anyway, whatever this thing was, and we may never know, it descended three times for Peter to fully get the point. Can anyone guess why that number would have been significant to Peter of all people? Three times. Well, of course you would remember that that's how many times Peter denied ever knowing Jesus in the first place that early Friday morning before the sun came up. It's also how many times Jesus spoke to Peter and restored him in the final chapter of the book of John where he says, love, if you love me, then love my people. Three times, gently restored his leadership. But this isn't about shaming Peter in my view. This is the spirit of God taking their time, speaking to Peter in a way that Peter could understand, not shaming him for being slow or dense. No, no, just patiently getting through to him. Some of us need the same message three times. I think I number myself among that group. Then there's this bold little detail, and these are always my favorite. Peter insists that nothing unclean had ever entered his mouth, as if that's even the point. Can you imagine saying this to the messenger of God after hearing Jesus himself teach that it wasn't what, what went into the mouth, but what came out of the heart through the mouth that condemned a person? But I like the fire in Peter. He's always protesting something. He's like the neighbor's dog. It's like, why are you barking? You're not enforcing anything. There's a wall here, dude. This is Peter constantly protesting, always pushing back, and he makes me feel sane, if I'm honest. You see, Peter's crimes were not of premeditated evil. Peter was felonious by sheer enthusiasm, and I so identify. But then there's this cool little rebuke. These are always interesting, and Peter seemed to collect them in our text, and I don't know why all his friends felt like they needed to write these down, but they did. Peter doesn't give us the stories of his rebukes. It's Mark and John and Luke and the rest of them. But he's not the only one who gets fired up in this encounter. He's not the only one who protests this. How could I possibly kill and eat these of all things? This angelic messenger, and I don't know how we're supposed to understand this as Jesus or a messenger from Jesus, he gets heightened in his own way too. You see, Peter's judgmental value statement that something, that anything, is by definition, by nature unclean, elicits a very quick response. And Peter should have known better. These were just animals. And since he spent years following Jesus around, touching and spending time with people who were considered by Jews to be unclean, he should have expected what might come next. You see, he knew firsthand that in the world of Jesus, there was no longer any such thing as people who were untouchable or people who were unclean. Inclusion had always mattered more than ritual purity to Jesus. In fact, he would often say, let's keep this little miracle between us. Otherwise, it would be known in the temple that he was ceremonially unclean and we'd have to stay out of the city for 10 days. Peter should have known, traveling in the entourage of Jesus, about categories of unclean. And then there's this last little funny detail that I can't not mention. Luke could have written that Peter was in prayer or possibly even fasting. Both things were probably technically true when he had this vision. But no, no, Luke makes it clear that he was in a hunger-induced trance, which just humanizes Luke and Peter for me. Anybody ever been in a hunger-induced trance? That describes every Sunday growing up as a pastor's kid for the entirety of my life. What can I tell you? Anyway, this vision converts Peter, changes the trajectory of Christianity, and there's so many cool details we could camp here for its own mini-series. But here's what interests me most about this passage, and I think it matters for us as a church. You see, these guys knew the prohibitions at the center of Judaism. 
They knew exactly who they could and could not eat with. They knew exactly what they could and could not touch. Keeping kosher mattered immensely to them. Peter wasn't being adult. He was properly embodying the faith that he had received from his ancestors. If you, rock, if you roll the clock all the way back to when the ancient Hebrew people first invaded the already inhabited lands east of the Jordan River, what they ate would have mattered immensely and how they scarred their bodies also would have mattered because it differentiated them from the other communities with distinct cosmologies. You see, their identity had not yet quite been formed and keeping kosher and circumcision was the outer tree ring of their time. But the times, my friend, they were a change in, said Bob Dylan. Peter, in a single starving trance, was able to go back with new evidence and reinterpret something from the past. And what I'm suggesting is that this is the point of this story. Now, okay, pause. Pause just a second. We are right over something very important here. Let's take our time with this. Friends, we know this. The times are always a change. In fact, if anything is true, it's that that's the only thing that's always true is that things are changing. Things are on the move. They never stop changing. That much has never changed. So Peter and the other 10 OGs and the women who aren't named in our text, but most of them started with the name Mary, and then there, of course there was Matthias who replaced Judas, and then there was Paul. They had to do the work that all generations must, and what was it? They had to take an established, existing, well-worn view of the cosmos and God, look at it again through a new lens of a new experience. You recall, I'm certain, the early rabbinical formulas, the teaching formulas that Jesus often used. They went like this. You've heard it said, but I tell you, you've known this thing forever, but but I'm asking you to look at it differently now. What was he doing there? He was introducing a new way to see an old truth, a fresh interpretation, a new angle based on new evidence. He's not abolishing the law. He's not saying that previous revelation was nonsense. He's saying there's a new thing, a new level, a new take we have to consider now. He's not saying suddenly that it's okay to murder. He's saying murder is prohibited, but also, guys, you should think about hate and anger. They're worth considering as well because the heart drives the body. Murder begins someplace, right? In a society that focused a ton on right actions, Jesus, this skilled teaching mystic, insisted that actions originated somewhere and that somewhere, that heart, that core of human life and experience can also be transformed by love. You've heard it said, but I tell you. What am I saying and why does any of this matter? Friends, I know the accusations that people like us sustain on the regular. I don't read a ton of what goes on online, but I see it every once in a while. I know the sort of title that's assigned to us for looking at old things with new experiences. Given this new thing that we see and can affirm, let's look again at the roots and let's figure out what the gospel is saying now. I know how that plays in public marketplaces. Fresh perspectives through the lens of the oppressed or through the lens of women or the voices of the marginalized, you fill in the blank. I know what people that are intent on conserving and preserving the past, I know what they think about us. I know they think we play fast and loose with the text. They say that we have a low view of Scripture, which is the worst label you could possibly acquire in their, in their view. And I also know that that means that they feel righteous and justified when they disown us and draw a new circle of belonging just outside of our reach. But here's the thing, hear me clearly. Everyone is always reinterpreting everything through the lens of new experiences. We might as well be honest about it. So are the conservatives. They're just not telling us they're doing it. 
So the question I have as a pastor of a church like this is, is it possible to build a faith community on doubt and on wonder, on the desire to know, on curiosity over certainty? Can you build a healthy and helpful community on welcoming the seamlessly endless disorientation that results from constant faith reevaluation? Oh, friend, I hope by now your heart is answering that question. Y'all, there is no shame in looking at an old thing again, an old assumption, a cherished but dated piece of revelation, there is no shame in looking at it again while digging for fresh meaning and new truth. It's the story of the book of Acts. It's the whole thing. It's almost hard to fully appreciate the meaning of this encounter. This story to me isn't so much about inclusion as it is the mechanics of how do we, how do, we do this work of saying, this was unexpected and now what do we do next? That's what this story is about. And ironically, not long after Peter and some of the others were busted out of the tank or the pokey or the county jail, whatever you want to call it, to stand before a kangaroo court of religious elite, not long after that, interesting, the friends of Jesus call him before some sort of a court doing the same kind of a thing. It's funny how we emulate the very things that hurt us. Acts tells us Peter was hauled before another church council. This time, the venerable James, brother of Jesus, presiding. But the outcome here is, not just further entrenchment or further division or further vitriol or violence. Let me read to you how the story ends. and We'll pick it up in verse 11. And again, this is Peter explaining what had happened when he was eating with people who he was not supposed to be. He says, at that very moment, three men sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were. The Spirit told me to go with them and not to make a distinction between them and us. These six brothers, the three that were with Peter and the three that were sent, to get Peter, these six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house and saying, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. This happened simultaneously. He will give you a message by which you and your entire household will be saved. Verse 15, and I began to speak, and the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as it had upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who, and bold this in your mind, who was I that I would consider hindering God? Who was I that I could hinder God? When they heard this, they were silenced, and they praised God, saying, then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. So did you notice what happened there in verse 18? It says that they were silenced, and they praised God for giving the gift of repentance to Gentiles. And I don't know if you've ever experienced a church squabble or skirmish or melee, but that's not how generally, that's not, not, this isn't how they usually end. Not in my experience. My experience is that church people speak their mind and then they build a new coalition around a new worldview and they reorganize, convinced that they're right, adding naturally, of course, that God is on their side as they pick and choose and grab and lift from the Bible to justify their new exclusivism. They call that righteousness and they call that the new thing, you see. How did Peter talk this rowdy crowd off the ledge? Peter was clearly coloring outside of the lines. But here's what Peter knew to unnecessarily limit the work of God by excluding anyone was to hinder God's hand. And even Peter, the great apostle, the great apostle of impulse, knew better. He knew that would be dangerous territory. The Holy Spirit was poured out on this man's family, his entire Gentile family, interestingly enough, all of the kids and all of the servants, it's, it implies. Just like the Jewish friends had, seen, had, had experienced Jesus in, in the Acts chapter 2. 
which I want to remind us is not about speaking in tongues, but it's about being empowered to be a witness to all people in all places, the love and of the mercy of God. So this final thought. Listen, friend, this is when we're reminded that we have musicians in the room. This final thought in the foyer back there, here they come. Listen, friend, I know how passionately we hold our progressive worldview. I do. I know how banged up some of us have been by fundamentalism and legalism and sexism and homophobia and ageism and racism and nationalism and colonialism and just plain nasty Christians with websites. I know how much we have suffered, some of us. But I also watch us turn almost immediately right around and exclude a new list of people that offend us. We act like those who wounded us. We close the gate right behind us, right? Instead of erasing lines altogether, we just draw them right behind where we happen to be standing at the moment. And oh, friend, I would be lying to you if I didn't confess that I see this tendency in myself. It's all too easy. But hear me clearly. Exclusion never delivers the comfort that it seems to promise. It will never be safe until I release the need to create categories altogether of any kind. And the same goes true for you. You see, my friend, there is nothing unclean in the world of love save the impulse to exclude. And let me say that one more time. There is nothing unclean in the world of love except the impulse to exclude. So what do we build our community on as we emerge from this pandemic? Well, man, I'd say this would be a pretty good place to start right here. On the invitation to constantly turn back to previous revelation, to earlier tree rings, to older understandings, old doctrines and thoughts, to the text itself and ways we understood it, to turn back with a fresh new light, with science and reason and new experiences, looking for the next puzzle piece to further fill out the form of God that we are beginning to understand, of a God who loves us and obsesses over our freedom and our release. Oh, I pray that we would be a community known for that. Let it be so.